like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal, come hear the animals, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Kelly Crandall, a graduate student at Southern Illinois University, whose research focusing on one type of animals accidentally yielded results about an entirely different species that may have monumental implications. As part of traveling an academic path to receive a master's degree in forestry, Crandall is working on a study funded by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service primarily designed to examine how human activities influence the movements of raccoons and possums. The study is based in Key Largo, Florida, largely taking place in the area of Crocodile Lake National Wildlife Refuge. In some ways, Crandall seems uniquely suited to participate in this research, starting with her interest in so-called spatial technologies, like using GPS location data. Additionally, having experience working as a technician with the U.S. Geological Survey in an adjacent area, Crandall has also developed an interest in the impact that such invasive species as the Burmese python were having on the mammal population, with an emphasis on those known as mesopredators, like raccoons and possums. Amidst a broader discussion with Crandall about an array of topics, we'll ask her to address where these areas of interest intersected and the unexpected results with those significant implications. That and more when I speak with Kelly Crandall in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. First, a couple of programming notes. Exactly two weeks from today, on February 22nd, WNF's Winter Fund Drive begins, and Talking Animals will be raising money that morning, and exactly this time, in fact. We're going to a fundraising goal of $2,800 in an hour. Yikes! To help reach that goal, I'm hoping I can count on your pledge, ideally before our Fund Drive day even gets underway. How about now, for example? Please visit WMNF.org, find the Talking Animals page in the program schedule, and uh, hit the tip jar. A donation of any size is appreciated. Thirty-five, fifty dollars, hundred if you can swing it, or more if you can kind of help cover people who may not be able to donate this time around, but still are fans of the show. If you're a fan of Talking Animals, if you appreciate the work we've been doing for nearly 20 years, please donate on our behalf. And as usual, we'll have some exclusive Talking Animal thank you gifts for pledges at various levels, from a pair of killer tickets to the Wilco concert to a cat apron. Our most popular gift last time to new dog aprons, just in the interest of equal time, and uh, copies of an inventive novel with a pelican hero and other talking animals. Yeah, you heard me, talking animals. And there are plenty of reasons to support talking animals in addition to those in WNO. So please consider pledging today. Also, another thing later in today's show, I'll be giving away a pair of tickets to National Geographic Live Wild Hope with Amy Vitale at the Strad Center on February 21st. And this evening at the Strap, photographer and filmmaker Amy Vitale shares her stories of the reintroduction of white rhinos and giant pandas into the wild, as well as Kenya's first indigenous-owned and run elephant sanctuary. That'll be later in today's program. Probably hooked to name that animal tune, though if you email me now at dj at wmnf.org that you'd like to go, I'll set you up with a pair of tickets right away. 
Also coming up later in today's program, I'll be presenting some animal news, a segment that was a staple of Talking Animals in the early days. It'll be nice to reprise that segment, even if it might be somewhat abbreviated version. We'll get to that later in today's program. Right now, though, let's meet Kelly Crandall with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Kelly Crandall on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Oh, it's great to be here talking to you. That's cool. So, of course, we're here chiefly to discuss your research and how it took sort of an unexpected turn and the uh, implications of that development. But first, just kind of for establishing some context and just generally getting to know you a little bit, let's talk a bit of Kelly Crandall history. For starting with, where did you grow up? Uh, so I'm from the western New York region. I'm about an hour and a half south of Buffalo, New York, in a pretty rural area of the state in uh, Chautauqua County. That's where I grew up. I got you. So as a kid growing up in kind of that rural area, what, what kind of interest did you have in animals then? I was a big animal kid. Growing up, we had cats and dogs. I had horses up until my senior year of high school. We even had some rabbits. And we also had a creek uh, kind of going through our backyard. We had a couple acres of land. And so I was always in the creek, like, flipping rocks, looking uh, for all sorts of critters. And so for most of my life, I've known that I've been very drawn to animals. Well, it sounds like it. It sounds like you're also lucky enough to have a great opportunity just inherently by where you lived. Oh, absolutely. It's a beautiful part of the state, and I'm really thankful to have uh, grown up there. Yeah. And so what was the prevailing attitude about animals in and around your family and, and in that kind of rural area? Was it, was there discernible uh, feeling or attitude about animals or was different people have kind of different feelings about them in that area? Well, I'm definitely the biggest animal person in my family. Um, when I talk to them about my current job with the pythons, they're like, you touch those giant snakes? And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, I do. And they're blown away by it. And I would say in the area, um, we really like cherish and respect wildlife. Um, we come from a big like hunting culture, so a lot of people... Um, really tried to preserve our game species and our natural habitat. And I think the New York Department of Environmental Conservation is a huge part of that. They do really great work throughout the entire state. And I think you can really tell um, just based on how many public parks we have and so many intact natural areas. Cool. So um, so it sounds like really over these years, growing up where you did and then beyond, that uh, – you're a big animal person, if you've noticed, they're big into fauna. But it sounds like, uh, I'm guessing at some point or another, flora became nearly as important, if not equally important. Absolutely. I think one thing that I've really taken away through my years in this field is that you can't just focus on the animals. You can't just focus on the fauna because they don't exist without the flora. There, There is no wildlife unless you have habitat. And learning about how both of those things depend on each other to really flourish um, has really been enlightening. And it you know, causes me to look at the world in different ways, thinking about how they interplay with each other. Very cool. So that was kind of, a, I guess, a gradually evolving point of view that uh, sounded like you were taking with animals kind of various kinds from the get-go, but it was maybe more over time with schooling and other things that you came to appreciate the significance and, and sort of how flora and fauna did indeed kind of work together. 
Absolutely. Growing up, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian, actually. And so uh, when I went to college at Cornell University, I was an animal science major. I was uh, taking all the pre-vet courses and I liked them, but I was having a hard time every time I worked at a clinic. I don't think I liked being inside all the time. It sometimes felt very repetitive to me. And also the classes that you have to take to go to vet school are really, really hard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I kind of had all these things in my mind. And then I was so fortunate to be able to study abroad uh, during my undergrad. And I got to go to Tanzania with the School for Field Studies program. And I got to spend a semester studying wildlife management and conservation. And we went into the field and we were observing elephants and zebras and we were doing bird counts. And, you know, I was learning about GPS technology for the first time. And that's when it kind of clicked into my brain. I was like, oh, this is what I want to do with animals, like, for the rest of my life. And I just haven't looked back then. Wow. Isn't that great when something like a, a, a trip like that is so transformative and uh, sounds like it really kind of guided you, like, where you're going to go indefinitely, really? It was life-changing. I can't really imagine I would be where I am today without have had having that semester and getting all that experience and I think it was it's still my favorite semester of my entire college career and yeah I I really don't think I would have gotten into wildlife conservation without that experience I'm so so thankful that program for that that's great so prior to that let's just back up a little bit so what were your major interests in high school both academic and extracurricular I'm just trying to see if there's a way to trace a path towards your interest then in the direction you've kind of traveled uh, in college and then since. Oh, gosh. I've had kind of a wild path. Um, so in high school, I was really big into um, competitive horseback riding, showing. Um, so typically during the summers, you could find me at the barn prepping for shows. I did a lot of jumping and things like that. Um, and then I was also on our varsity tennis team. So I did get a little bit of the sports uh, life in there, but I was also a big music nerd. I was in band and chorus and I was in some school musicals and in the pit band for some musicals. Wow. I was kind of all over the place with my interests and I they didn't really have a lot to do with wildlife specifically in high school. I did volunteer at some vet clinics, and I did work at one for a while, uh, but nothing with wildlife, really. Yeah, but that's really great, though, because, I mean, you say you're kind of all over the place, but I think that's what a lot of people would say is a great sort of broad interest in educational path that wherever you ended up peeling off, I mean, you had like a great foundation and... and um, as opposed to some people who just kind of zero in early on and sort of maybe miss out on the opportunities to, to sample some of those things that you did spend time on then, maybe not so much now, but uh, but that's great. So what was your major then as an undergrad? Maybe you said that, if, I, so, if so, I missed that. I was an animal science major. So okay. I mostly took courses pertaining to domestic species, but I did take some wildlife classes towards the end. Yeah, that's right. You did say that at Cornell when you were still thinking I'm pre-vet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I understand it now, you're working towards a master's degree in forestry. What types of coursework or in other maybe fields of study does a master's in forestry encompass? It can be lots of different types of courses. So for instance, in my two semesters so far, I'm in my 
so my first year of my master's. I've taken a lot of statistic-oriented uh, uh, classes, so it's been learning about different types of mathematical modeling, some general, like, biostatistics courses, and that's been really interesting because I've worked as a field technician for a few years now, and when you're a field technician, you're doing a lot of hands-on things with the animals. You might be trapping, you might be entering data, but you're never really getting to that analysis stage where you're actually putting the numbers all together and drawing conclusions. And so I've really enjoyed kind of getting that perspective of things and learning what to do when you finally have all your data, because I've never really experienced that before. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And then I'll also be taking um, some plant classes. I'm trying to uh, take advantage of a forestry department and uh, beef up on my botany knowledge uh, while I'm there. And it's really flexible. You can take a lot of different courses and kind of cater it to what you want your specialty to be. That's very cool. It sounds like there's a lot of varied elements to pursuing that degree. So does it also go that along with that, that it yields a, a huge variety of kind of careers of people who do have a master's in forestry? Absolutely. Um, I think some people go to the forest service or they might go into private industries having to do with forestry. Um, some people do the wildlife route. And with that, you could go into like a state or federal agency like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife service and work as a wildlife biologist, or you could also stay in academia and go on and get a PhD and then maybe become a professor um, and do research full-time that way through a university. And so there are so many paths you can take within this field and even broader throughout forestry. Is that one of the things that drew you to it is that even without knowing that you're um, you know, necessarily maybe when you first said, hey, that's a degree I want to pursue here as a, in terms of a master's, uh, you might not necessarily have known like what specific area you wanted to end up at, but, but the sort of variety and the number of options that it presents, was that one of the things that appealed to you? Absolutely. It felt like I would have a lot of flexibility uh, getting a degree in forestry. And I was also looking forward to taking courses that are emphasizing that um, aspect that we need to be looking at habitat, too, because, like I said earlier, these animals don't exist without habitat. And I think the forestry program um, is really good at keying us into these interactions between wildlife and their habitat. And also, as part of the other question I probably should have asked a second ago earlier, was so as we've established, you went to Cornell for undergrad. So is Southern Illinois University known for its forestry degree or other related degrees? And is that what kind of prompted you to apply to for your graduate program there? I do believe uh, we do have a pretty well-known forestry uh, program. I think they've been having a really stellar program for a long time, and they produce a lot of great students who go on to do really cool things in the field. Um, but I had actually not heard of Southern Illinois University before. Um, this position was posted on a wildlife job board. And so, you know, it was about meso predators in the Florida Keys, looking at their movement, which is something that I'm really interested in. And then it also had this Python perspective. And I have worked down in South Florida before with the U.S. Geological Surveys on pythons. And it just felt like this, like, beautiful accumulation of all these things that I've done throughout my career. And I was like, 
I have to get this position. I have to go to this school and do this project. Like it was made for me. And I'm really thankful that I got the project because it's been an amazing time so far. And I'm really enjoying FIU. Wow. So that's great. So if I follow this, it was the study that caught your eye on the job board. And that's what sent you kind of in the direction of of SIU. It wasn't necessarily the other way around, which many people would think, well, while while she was pursuing this degree, this this kind of study became available, or she actually maybe even helped create the study. It sounds like that's how you ended up going in, in the direction for that degree was the the posting on the job board initially. Exactly. Yeah, there are a couple ways kind of going about starting a graduate degree, and so sometimes maybe you have this burning idea for a project, and you're like, I have to do this for my master's or my PhD. And so then you might kind of scout around online for some professors who do similar work. And then you might email them and say, hi, I'm Kelly. I have this idea for a project and I want to know if you have funding available for a student or if you have time for a student and I will find funding myself through grants or such. And then other times uh, professors have funding ahead of time and then they might have a project that they want to have done, or they might just have like a vague idea for something, or they might just have funding available. And so then they might advertise that they have a position open within their lab, and then you can apply. And that's more kind of like a standard job application versus like picking out a school and then uh, applying to the school, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, that that is interesting because, again, I just think a lot of people sort of think of people that are actually already in grad school when a cool project or a cool study or a research opportunity comes along. And uh, it's just interesting to hear that this sort of came about, not slightly in the reverse, but it's sort of a different direction uh, than, than that, what I think would be considered a maybe more common model. Yeah, absolutely. It is kind of a little backwards than you, uh, what you might expect. Uh, but sometimes it works out really great, and I can definitely attest to that. Cool. Let me let folks know this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Kelly Crandall, a graduate student at Southern Illinois University whose research in Key Largo focusing on one type of animals, those being raccoons and possums, accidentally yielded results about an entirely different animal, that being the Burmese python, of course, a rampant and destructive uh, invasive species in South Florida. So, uh, we're going to uh, get into that in a moment, hearing more about the project itself and the implications that uh, this may have for tracking the snakes and maybe reducing their population. If you have a question for Kelly or would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. In fact, it looks like we may have a caller now that might want to get in on the conversation. Let's, let's see. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Kelly Crandall. Ah. They just hung up right at that mo- exact moment. Okay, too bad. Maybe they'll call back. Okay. So the suspense is killing me, if not everybody else. Let's hear about the study you've been working on more specifically. So you saw it on the job board, and so obviously it existed before you came aboard. But what did you know about it? What caught your eye about the job board, and what, what happened as you first got started on it? So what really caught my eye about the posting was that it was looking at Um, what we call mesopredators, which are animals that, um, you know, they're not large carnivores, they're not pumas, they're not wolves, they're medium-sized mammals, um, and they do consume some prey, but, you know, they're typically not the dominant predator in the system. So we're talking about raccoons, possums, foxes, 
bobcats, coyotes, those types of animals um, that I really enjoy looking at. I feel like they can be a great model for studying um, predator-prey interactions because when you're working with these really large carnivores, there are a lot of, um, you know, kind of hoops to jump through. They're, you know, have really large ranges and they typically don't have very dense uh, populations, so they're hard to catch and then they're really hard to track. They might be moving, you know, huge swaths of distances. And so it's kind of nice looking at it on a smaller scale and looking at raccoons and possums. And at my previous uh, job when I was in the Everglades, I would be walking around in the woods and there were just no mammals. Like, I think my entire time there, I saw a couple squirrels and, like, one raccoon even driving around at night and it, it just felt so empty of mammals and so I was always kind of thinking about well, what's happening with the animal the mammals that are still here like are they moving are they trying to get out of the park do they are they still operating as business as usual not really thinking about these pythons in the system and so Key Largo is really interesting because they're much earlier on what we call the invasion curve. So Python, the first Python that was detected on Key Largo was in 2007, whereas in the Everglades, Pythons were well established in the 80s and already had a breeding population. Um, so the snakes here are typically smaller than what we might see in the mainland of South Florida. We still have a very robust mammal population, so there are still lots of raccoons and possums here and so it's kind of this perfect um situation to like catch this window of time before it's too late and you know in 10-15 years i think doing this kind of study where we're trapping uh raccoons and possums and outfitting them with collars it might be a lot more difficult just to trap the number of animals that you need i think we probably will be seeing some population decline and so I was just really ecstatic that I might be able to actually look at these predator-prey interactions that I had been thinking about during my previous job. Okay, so then I guess the study that was focused on raccoons and possum, as I hear you explain it now, what I guess I didn't understand previously is that it really did have at least some element of the python situation and and population really built into it, at least on, on some level. Do I, do I have that right? Kind of. My... Project right now really isn't looking too much at pythons. Yeah, I, see, I didn't, I didn't think so. I thought it was kind of had a different <laughs> thing, and that the pythons just sort of, by one of those things that happens sometimes, kind of entered the picture, entered the study, but not in a way that was designed for in, in the in the research project or that you expected. So, do I have is that kind of closer to to uh, the right understanding? Yeah, exactly. It was kind of like something might happen with pythons, and if it does, we'll kind of adapt to that when it comes. But the the bulk of my project is looking at um, how these animals are interacting with urban spaces. And so I'm attaching GPS collars to them and looking at things like how big their home ranges are and if the sizes of those home ranges might be shrinking as they're closer to urban areas. And the thinking behind that is that these animals are very apt to take advantage of um, what we call supplemental food sources. And so that could be things like dumpsters or unsecured garbage cans in backyards, bird feeders, um, if you leave food out for cats. 
that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a raccoon, you might just head over to the backyard next door and, you know, eat your dinner. And then you don't really need to move around and forage the whole night, which a raccoon that's like more in the middle of Key Largo and these like natural lands might do. Yeah. And so what is really interesting when you think about that is that, you know, these are native animals. They have, you know, ecosystem services. They play roles in these ecosystems. And some of those roles might be seed dispersal. Um, Both raccoons and possums eat native fruits and then they disperse those seeds, um, which is really great for plant propagation. And then they are also our predator species. And so they eat things like um, birds and rodents. Um, they are nest predators, so they might get into bird nests or even crocodile nests. We do have crocodiles here. And so it's like, are they spending more of their time in these urban spaces? And is that affecting their roles within the ecosystem? And so that's kind of where the, the bulk of the project is. And yeah. I'm also interested in some disease dynamics as well. And then now we also have these Python interactions coming in as well. Yeah. Okay, well, I have some follow-up questions, but I think we do have a caller who'd like to maybe get involved as well this time, so let's see. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Kelly Crandall. Hello, my name's Jimmy. I'm from calling from St. Pete. I was born here, and I think it's really interesting how um, she can be able to study the animals here in Florida, and, um, you know, there's just... And I think there's one interesting thing that I always thought that the the population of the small animals, like she was talking about, Mm -hmm. I think they're more around, you know, the, um, the urban areas more because they can feed off of us. And there's little small pockets of wooded areas. I'm lucky I work at Bay Pines and it's 300 acres and we have coyotes and otters and raccoons, a lot of raccoons. Yeah. No, actually, you hit on a question I was going to follow up on Kelly's last description with, including if indeed with what the animals are looking for, you know, supplemental food sources, are they... Are they going to a certain place that that is more populated? Do you have your right. Do you have your radio on there in the background, Jimmy, or something? That sounds I, like we're, I got it turned down. I'm okay, th- thanks. Yeah, I was hearing that feedback and be a little bit delayed. So, uh, any other question or comment for for Kelly? Uh, um, yeah, well, um, you know, and that can all be tied in because I had a great instructor at USF, uh, and it was a biogeography class, and you know how these little pockets of animals, how they survive, and you know they're the 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 the, the the whole tree canopies are disappearing and you know it's just um a hard hard uh way to i think she mentioned hard for them to survive yeah okay jimmy well thank Absolutely. you so much for your call and your comments i appreciate them both thank you thank you so kelly in terms of describing sort of what this study is actually looking at and what it's at least intended to look at how much of this deals with something you had mentioned kind of earlier in our conversation regarding just shifting habitats i would say um, it's kind of the bulk of the project, and I would frame it less as shifting habitat as looking at how uh, movement is varying along what we call the urban wild gradient. So if you think if you're, you know, standing next to a Circle K gas station, you have woods right behind you, you're, you're very much in that kind of urban area, that we say. Yeah. Uh, but then you might be, you know, m- much more within like an intact natural habitat um, and you're a lot farther away from urban areas. And so uh, what I really want to look at is how things like their movement is being affected, you know, amongst individuals who are occupying, you know, along that entire gradient. So there are some that exist very close to urban areas. 
some that only, you know, sometimes visit urban areas. Um, and so I'll be kind of comparing their movement characteristics to each other from a long back gradient. Yeah, because I would think some of those things would shift depending on what where things are in the cycle. Like if there's an area that's being, God forbid, developed for another like housing development, I would think that would displace some of the raccoons and possums from where they had been before that project began. But then they would also turn up somewhere else when at that place or elsewhere there's homes and opportunities for the kind of food sources that you had mentioned in terms of food for cats or garbage cans or other things. So it seems like that would shift a little bit depending on what, what that area, what that habitat is, is going through at that particular cycle versus previously or later. Oh, absolutely. And what we often see is that when habitat patches are getting smaller and smaller and more fragmented, you know, these animals are coming into contact more frequently with each other. And that can, you know, play a huge role in things like disease transmission. And then if they're going into these urban areas or going to new areas, um, they can be spreading um, these diseases. And if you have these sort of hot spots, of um, resources that all sorts of species are utilizing, you know, like, um, you know, like a bull cat food in someone's backyard, you're going to have cats, but also raccoons and possums and rodents like black rats all going um, to that food source and interacting. And, you know, that could be dangerous. They might have antagonistic interactions. Um, you know, there could be lots of disease transmission from the wild animals to the domestic and then also from the domestic to the wild. And so it just starts to throw everything a little out of whack. Yeah. And it, it just has all these cascading effects. Yeah. Well, speaking of out of whack, what did you think at first when you realized a tracking collar was inside a python? It was, it was pretty wild and it was kind of a long process. It was kind of over a couple months. So um, this particular possum was collared in August. And so that means we set a trap out in the in the environment, in the wilderness. We catch that individual. We put a GPS collar on them and then we release them back where they came from. So we're not, you know, translocating them. We're putting them right back to where they came from and letting them go about their business as as usual. And with these collars, they're outfitted with what we call a mortality beacon. And so that means if the collar has not moved in four hours, which is what we set it to, uh, the collar will start emitting a different sound when we go out with our antenna and our receiver. And that's, you know, how we locate the animals. Like we listen for these uh, sounds that are emitted over a frequency. But the collar is kind of like, radio. And so um, one of our technicians, Joe, uh, heard the mortality signal and he was like, okay, going to go look. And a lot of times with possums, they're pretty short-lived. They only live like one to three years. Um, And so sometimes they just expire in the environment or um, also they're really good at dropping their collars because they don't really have much of a neck possum. They're kind of built different. Um, But with this signal, um, it was underground, which isn't too unusual, Key Largo and the rest of the Keys, you know, they're an old string of coral. It's an old coral reef that over the years, you know, has become these lands, but there's like really not that much topsoil before you get into these like underground cavernous coral structures um, from, from ages and ages ago. But the 
the stigma was kind of moving away from Joe, which was pretty interesting because when you hear a mortality beacon, you expect that it's going to stay in one place. And so that was our first sign that we might not be looking at a dropped collar or just a deceased possum. And uh, we were able to remotely download the data from that collar. And that's when I was getting really suspicious because we could see that that mortality beacon had activated like 30 times. Because once the collar moves a little bit, it'll go back to like the normal beacon. Mm. And that's very unusual. Sometimes, you know, if an animal's deceased, there might be some scavenging. So you might have a couple on and off of the mortality beacon, but nothing like that. But when you think about a snake, you know, they stop and start a lot and they'll stay put very still for, you know, hours and hours at a time. And so from there, it just became a game of cat and mouse. And so every day, Joe would go out and listen for this possum and Sometimes he would hear it, sometimes he wouldn't, sometimes it would away from him. And then one day at the very beginning of November, he went out and the snake was actually on the surface and he could hear that that signal was coming from the snake. And it was a big female um, and she started underground, but then the whole team came together and after a lot of work, they were able to get her out um, and confirm that the caller was indeed within her system. And it was sighted. I was also sad for my study animal but yeah. honestly being like a, a 12 and a half foot reproductively active female who was just filled with egg follicles that would potentially become baby pythons you know being able to remove her from the environment it's like we save like generations of native animals uh just with this one big snake um so it was really thrilling so for people listening who might not be as fully aware uh maybe you could just briefly describe why these pythons are problematic for the other animal population in and around the area where they where they've been found and and where where you found this one in particular Absolutely. Uh, so the python population has been established in South Florida for quite a few decades now. Um, I think we consider them to be established in the 80s. So that means they were reproducing, you know, males and females were at a density where they could find each other and successfully have eggs. Um, and they are voracious predators. Um, they can take very large prey. Um, you know, it's been documented that they might be eating something 100% the size of their body weight or even, you know, 110% of their body weight at a single time. So they're very successful predators. And you may hear the phrase like it's a 1% detection rate. You know, you're, you're only going to find a python 1% of the time when you're near it. And I think it's pretty easy to go, well, I mean, how hard is it to find a snake? Especially if you're like kind of a wildlife person, you're like, I can spot a snake. But it, it's true. Their camouflage is so good. I mean, I've had times where I was in South Florida and um, it was inundated in water. And so we had water like a portion and it was a little murky. And we were um, looking for a scout snake, a snake that's transmitted um, with the goal of leading us to other snakes. And I was, I was like, we're really close. Like, we got to be really close. And, you know, I was with a couple of my coworkers, and I'm, I'm looking at the ground. I'm looking at the water. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And then I just see, like, six inches of his back just, like, going over my boots. And I couldn't, I couldn't feel him. He was, like, swimming. And, you know, you just get that one glimpse, and it's, they're so hard to see. Wow. And so removing them is just 
it's so difficult, so hard finding them. It's really chance. A lot of it is often they're crossing the road and you just happen to be there um, for these like new novels. Mate. Yeah. Um, so it, it's hard and they've just devastated mammal communities. They also, you know, they eat birds, they eat um, alligators, they eat deer, and they'll just eat anything and they can grow very fast. They can grow very big. Um, and it's just really sad to see what they've done uh, to South Florida. Yeah. Well, that brings me to a couple of follow-up questions. Another uh, caller who I think looks like they'd like to be involved as well, so let's try them. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Kelly Crandall. Hello, this is Jimmy again. I just got one question. Uh, where did the pythons come from? I got the story that when Andrew hit, hit the zoos and plus the, the pet owners who had the pythons for pets and once they blew their houses down in the zoos, then they got loose. Great question. Um, I have heard that as well about Andrew. I read that um, there was like a snake breeding facility, I think, for the exotic pet trade that was damaged um, and led to the release of a lot of snakes. But I believe that they were already had been, you know, a lot of them had already been released by pet owners um, prior to oh. Andrew. And then I think Andrew, you know, did not help the problem by any means. Um, but they have been here, uh, I believe, prior to Andrew. If anyone knows differently, feel free to call in and correct me. I will not be upset. But, okay. um, yeah. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the way I think I've always heard it was that it was pet owners who all of a sudden realized, hey, I can't really live with or keep this python that I got when it was baby and super small, so that they did kind of go and release them in and around the Everglades. So th that, that then it was Andrew that exacerbated that situation subsequently, but I think it initially was uh, people with exotic pets and obviously pythons in particular who realized they just couldn't keep them and so they went and released them and that's kind of didn't take long, as you've noted, in a slightly different context for the population to take off. And then again, I think the Andrew thing just brought it up to a whole other level as well. Absolutely. So we're almost nearing the end of our time, Kelly, I'm afraid. But so what do you think the implications are of finding the you know, unfortunate uh, caller, but uh, the caller in the python? Well, in terms of the, 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 the python problem that we're discussing, uh, are there ways that from the study that you've been doing to specifically address the python problem in a new way with technology and some of the things that are offshoots of the research study that you had designed? Great question. I think there is a lot of promise in this method. Um, obviously, we've had the, the one press release about our possum, but actually just last week, uh, we discovered that um, one of our adult raccoons uh, had been consumed by a python, and so we removed another 12-foot female, and this one was actually 77 pounds. The first one was 62, so it was even a bigger snake. Um, and it's really remarkable because we've maybe sampled 2% of the mammal population here on Key Largo, and we've had at least two predation events by pythons. Um, and so I think it really goes to show that if we can get the funding to get more callers out there, it would kind of be a, um, a double-edged sword because we'd be collecting a lot of great data on what these animals are doing and how they're moving, you know, separate from pythons. But if this is the, the best way to find these big, reproductively active females, again, the ones that are going to lay eggs, and, you know, give first the next generation of pythons, um, it could it could really be effective. 
Okay, great. So you're not, at the moment at least, designing or, or even like redesigning the current study to incorporate that, but that's something that, was that something you could anticipate happening that would be like another phase or just an entirely different kind of project? Absolutely. We're in the process of getting some grants together and we're hoping to um, procure more funding for more callers and to deploy more callers. Um, it would still kind of be a part of the same project. They would still be GPS callers collecting points on movement and such. Um, but we would definitely um, be investigating any mortality signal and, and looking for pythons. Um, but, yeah, we're in the process of kind of expanding the project to try and get more callers out there. So is it only a matter of the pythons, as happened in the original case that we're discussing, only being predators of animals that are in the study, the raccoons and possums specifically? Is that the only way this would really work? Because otherwise there would really be no way to track them because if you could track them to, to you know put a call on them, then you wouldn't need to do that. You would just have the, the python right there in your hands. So so is this always going to be a matter of uh, for the pythons to be tracked in, in a way that that might help uh, control or reduce their population, that it would still be part of the collars on the raccoons and the, or, or the possums? Yeah, I think we'll probably be trying everything we can all at once. We'll probably still be tracking snakes um, with the scout program to be hopefully led to breeding aggregations to remove snakes that way. We will still be doing road cruising and looking to pick up snakes um, off the sides of the road. And now we'll probably be Im- implementing these mammal collars as well. And, you know, it's trying to just, you know, utilize whatever technology we have available to try and combat this problem. Because right now there is no good solution. You know, yeah. across Florida, we're all struggling to control these pythons. And their population is only growing every year. There are more detections every year. And so anything that could work, we're going to try. Okay, that makes sense. Here are a couple of emails that have come in that are of note. One, one says, this goes back to like the cause or at least the spread of, of the uh, pythons. The, this email says, there's also a rumor that lots of drugs, cocaine, was being shipped in boxes with imported snakes. Customs did not want to open the boxes of snakes, so these drug importers got away with it for a long time until authorities were tipped off. Then apparently they started dropping the boxes off the cargo planes over the Everglades so they wouldn't get caught. So that's interesting. That's that's something I had oh, heard before. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, so, uh, so one last quick question. It's sort of uh, slightly off topic, but it might be something you know off the top of your head, and I hadn't really thought about it before. But one of our emailers just wrote in simply saying, are there chipmunks in Florida? Oh, great question. I believe so. Uh, I I know here we just have squirrels and then the Key Largo wood rat, Key Largo cottonmouth, and the um, black rat, you know, the yeah. regular house rat. So that's in the Keys. I, maybe further up north, but that's a really good question. I yeah. don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, me neither. It's never really come up before. So, uh, okay, well, on that chipmunk note, I think we have unfortunately reached the end of our time. But, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us and talking. We've been speaking with Kelly Crandall. And, again, hopefully we'll track, uh, so to speak, your research and maybe do an update when there's more development, especially depending on how the Python element with a more concerted effort figures in and what kind of results you're seeing at that point. So thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us today on Talk Animals and explain your study and kind of the offshoots of it, and it's been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much, Duncan. Thank you. 
In a moment, we'll present a version of Animal News, something we haven't done in a while here on the show as the structure and format of the program has evolved. We're approaching the 20th anniversary of Talking Animals, by the way. Right now, though, we're going to step into the Comedy Corner. This is Joe Zimmerman with a piece called Crows in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm mad at Google right now. I had an important question to ask, and I remember typing in, what is my... Before I could finish... The thing that Google suggested was spirit animal. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, what is it? Because <laughs> you see other people and you know, right? You're like, toucan. <laughs> but nobody's ever told me mine, so I'm genuinely taking this online spirit animal quiz. <laughs> hoping I'm a chocolate lab. I don't know if I've ever been more disappointed than to learn I'm a crow. I thought these were supposed to be fun. Congrats, you're the scavenger bird. You're defensive. You're defensive. The crow likes laughing and eating. Everybody likes laughing and eating. It's almost like these internet quizzes are just making stuff up. I was aggravated, like a crow would be. <laughs> so I went back to Google, looked up second opinion online spirit animal quiz. <laughs> like, no way I'm a crow twice. <laughs> this time I'm basically lying, trying to get chocolate lab. Like, <laughs> love snuggling and being rescued. Come on. <laughs> quiz number two told me I'm a cricket. That's not even an animal, that's an insect. I don't want a spirit bug. So now crows starting to sound pretty good. Now I'm researching more about crows to learn a little bit more about my people. Typing into Google, are crows cool? And uh, short version, they are. They are cool. I recommend them. Crows recognize individual human faces. I know you guys are like, this guy's not going to keep talking about crows, is he? <laughs> but I kind of need to. <laughs> I'll sum up the study real quick. Basically, a scientist was mean to a crow and then released it, waited to see if the crow remembered him. Not only did it remember him, but it was like, I hate you. <laughs> and then it surprised him when it told other crows and it could point him out in a crowd. It was like, that dude's cool, that dude's cool, that's the dude. <laughs> And then those crows spread the word to even more crows. They were like, that's the man who bullied Jonathan. <laughs> that, doesn't sound, that doesn't sound that crazy because we also recognize other human faces. That'd be the equivalent of us recognizing an individual crow's face. Like, there he is. <laughs> that's the one who stole my windowsill pie. So don't mess with crows, because they're smart, they hold grudges, and groups of crows are called murders. You know what groups of people are called? Groups. I'll tell you who else holds a grudge, Crow Zimmerman. That was Joe Zimmerman in today's Comedy Corner, the piece called Crows, taken from an appearance on Conan. 
Now it's time to get into a bit of animal news with a small assortment of stories about critters here on Talking Animals on WNF. Starting on the global scene and, and tied into the uh, horrible, horrible earthquake uh, in Turkey and Syria. Birds flew erratically above, this is from the Washington Post, by the way. A bird flew erratically above snow-capped buildings. Dogs howled loudly. Then a, a devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria leveled buildings and killed more than 5,000 people. I think it's up to at least six or seven at this point now. Social media users claimed that animals were behaving strangely just before the massive 7.8 magnitude earthquake and significant aftershocks. While the Washington Post could not immediately verify the footage, the idea that animals can detect powerful earthquakes before humans has been a theory around at least since ancient times. There is scientific research that supports it, much in the same way that seismological machines can pick up tremors undetectable to the human body. Animals are better equipped to sense tiny force shocks traveling through the Earth seconds before more powerful earthquake waves barrel through, scientists say. You might even be able to sense them before the force shocks, some researchers say. Another story, and my thanks to this one for Joellen Shilke right here from... WMNF, host of Art Year on Friday afternoon, uh, for calling my attention to this, and this is also partly a product of creative loafing. This says, bars in Tampa and Orlando are challenging the Florida Department of Health over decisions to block dogs from being in their establishments. Pups Pub Tampa and Pups Pub Orlando filed a case last week at the State Division of Administrative Hearings after health officials ordered issued orders to prevent dogs in what the case describes as dog-friendly bars. And part attorneys for the bars wrote the department reverse course after earlier allowing dogs. Also, they said the bars do not serve food and are designed to keep separation between dogs and where drinks are prepared. Goes on from there, so we'll kind of keep an eye on that story. That sounds interesting, especially we've had a lot of folks from different dog bars in and around Tampa Bay area on the show. It's a lot stake for them. So this is from uh, an online site called The Rent, which is claiming to have a listing of the 10 best dog cities. And 